Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I interview memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest in this episode is Shavisa Woods. Thanks for having me. She is the author of 100 Times, A Memoir of Sexism from Seven Stories Press. As our British friends say, it does what it says on the tin. This is a chronicle of 100 separate specific incidences of sexism that Shaviza has encountered over the course of her lifetime. So I guess my first question, before we get into the you know, the real nitty-gritty, is let's deal with sort of an artistic structural question, is how does this organizing principle come about? I decided that I really wanted to show the whole arc of my life with a laser focus on just incidents of sexist discrimination, um, unconscious bias, harassment, uh, assault, and violence. I also decided to write her really bare bones. I just wrote what happened. There's not a whole lot of exposition in this book, and there aren't many times when I really talk about how I felt or what I thought the men's motivations were. I just wanted to leave that up to the reader to decide, why do you think this happened? How do you think this must have felt? We are recording this conversation a couple of weeks after the publication of E. Jean Carroll's essay, which is an excerpt from her own book about having been sexually assaulted by Donald Trump, which, and the thing is, that was the headline-grabbing part of it. But when you read the entire essay, it's about, again, men throughout the course of her lifetime. And she flat out says at the beginning, it's like, these aren't all. These are just the ones that I'm picking out as the worst. Um, so I'm sure that you also probably left a lot on the table or on the cutting room floor, as it were. I did. Um, I actually met Eugene yesterday. We did an interview for NPR. And sitting in the green room, I looked at her book and, you know, she looked at mine. Or I looked at her book the night before and she looked at my book. And we talked about it and we realized that we were probably writing these things at the same time. We had no idea that we were both making a list. It's a really strange impulse, but I also think it's very clarifying to just sit and make a list so that you can see, like, yes, this is really happening. This is how many times at least it's happened. This is a real problem. I did leave some things on the cutting room floor. There are more than 100 incidents I could have chosen to talk about, but I thought 100 was a nice round number. I think it signifies that something profound has taken place. We measure significant amounts of time, like centuries and hundreds, but it's also small enough that the reader can hold the entire story in their mind. As you say, this goes all the way back to childhood. I, I want to say that the first incident is maybe at the age of five. That's correct. And one of the first things that pops up, and it's a recurring theme throughout your childhood and even into adulthood, is this idea that even when you go to people in authority for help, they're automatic response is, oh, well, you know, you must be enjoying this, actually. Yeah, it's a strange message that we send to girls um, starting at a very young age, and I illustrated it in the first chapter. The first chapter is not even a page long. It's just about being five years old and a little boy in the sprinklers, um, we were both in our swimming suits, pinching my butt repeatedly to the point that it hurt, and he was also saying sexual things to me, and I didn't totally understand, but I knew it made me feel very uncomfortable. It also physically hurt, and I wanted him to stop. And my experience previously had been that if I hurt someone or hit someone or tripped their toy, and they told on me, I would get in trouble. And the same thing happened if it was a boy or a girl, and they hurt me or hit me, and I told on them, they would get in trouble. But what happened when it was of a sexual nature is I went in and I told the adults, he keeps pinching my butt. And he was standing there smiling, and he, you know, I think he even said something like, it's cute or something, and you have a cute butt or something. I'm sure he's parroting something he heard. And the adults, not all of them, but some of the adults in the room, specifically his mother, laughed at me 
and said, oh, you know, it iterated that I probably liked it and that I liked the attention. And that was really strange to me at that age, but I think that's the first time that I was told, not so subtly, that if a boy is hurting you, he'll get in trouble, but if the way he's hurting you is sexual, it takes on a whole new layer, and suddenly this is my fault and I'm inviting it, or it's something funny that's happening. I think there's a lot of resistance, particularly among males, to accepting the notion of rape culture. Mm -hmm. That it's, you know, it's a very stark term, but... The more you listen to women and their experiences, particularly as they're talking about a lifetime of experience and the way that it, it, those experiences are, or the men who perpetrate those, those things are condoned or encouraged or, or let off the hook, you get to a point where there's really just no other way to describe it. That even the incidents that aren't rapes mm -hmm. contribute to a climate in which rape is much more likely to occur. Absolutely. And I actually, I should point out, I didn't name any of the men in this book. I decided not to name a hundred men. For one thing, these incidents range from like microaggressions, just things people said verbally to me that I'm like, are you treating me this way because I'm a woman, to discrimination all the way to rape. And I did not want those to be conflated in the reader's head because I do think that there are different levels of things. Mm -hmm. Some of the men in this book are still my friends because I think most men, actually I think all men have been socialized to participate in sexist behavior. And I do not think having ever participated in it makes you a monster. But I do hope that men will read this book and start to become more aware of what women are talking about when we talk about things like rape culture and sexism and the cumulative impact that all of this has on us that may otherwise remain invisible to you. If a man has not come to this realization before reading this book... I think most haven't. Most haven't. It feels like there has to be some point for a man in the reading of this book to step back mentally and say, wow, I have been this asshole at some point in my life. Particularly with the, the as you say, the microaggressions, the, mm -hmm. you know, the, the parts where you're, you know, you think you're being flirtatious or engaging in, and really you're just being an asshole to a woman. Right. I think it remains invisible. I think, I honestly think the larger aggressions remain invisible to a lot of men who don't participate in that. So they don't see the minor things that they're doing as being part of a larger whole. I was actually with a close male friend of mine at a bar and he walked in and like immediately went to the bathroom. So I sat at the bar alone. I actually just stood at the bar alone waiting for him and I was rummaging around in my purse and a man who was my age, um, it was just like a year ago, was sitting catty cornered to me at the bar and he looked at me and he was he said, Are you scared? And it was just a bizarre question and he had this like ornery look in his eyes and I just said assertively, No, I'm not scared. Why would I be scared? And he's like, You sure you're not scared? You look scared. Maybe you should be scared. And I said again, I'm not scared. He was like, well, you look scared. This went on for a while and suddenly, and he just kept repeating it. And I was sort of ignoring him, but also just like perplexed by this. Went on for about, you know, almost a minute. And then suddenly he looked up and in the middle of his sentence, he said, you sure you're not scared? And then he stopped. And then he said, oh, and then he leaned back and he sort of waved his hand and mumbled. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. And I, and I looked down over my shoulder and my male friend was standing next to me. And then he put his arm around me and then he stared at the guy and the guy just sort of crumbled. And I was like, he stopped as soon as he saw there was a man with me. He wasn't willing to let a man witness this 
inane behavior for whatever reason. When a man was present, he was like, oh, I have to stop playing this weird misogynist game I'm playing with you. It, it was very bizarre. And then Joseph was like, you get this all the time, don't you? That was my friend. And I was like, yeah, I do. And he's like, and it stops as soon as I'm here, so I don't see it. I was like, yes. <laughs> this is, it, it's really strange. And I think it also has to do with men seeing other men as owning women. When I'm alone, I, I belong to no one. I don't belong to myself. But when there's another man with me, oh, now I, my, my handler is here. And, and they respect him, and they can't do that anymore. Right. There's another incident that you describe where you're trying to get a work project accomplished. And, oh, my God. And the subcontractor has <laughs> fucked it up. <laughs> and you're, you, go, you go to his office, and you're telling him, it's like, no, you have done this wrong. This is what I need. And he's telling you, it's like, no, 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 you need this. Yeah, this is right. Don't. Don't don't worry yourself. This is right, and you're like, no, I need this. And finally, he wanders off and say, and you take that opportunity to get on the phone with a guy who doesn't even work for you. No, just a friend of mine. Yeah. yeah so this was I was doing a public art project. I was the production manager for. We had raised five thousand dollars. I think we'd raised ten thousand dollars, but we spent five thousand dollars on a billboard. I had researched billboards. I knew what kind of material I needed. The material the company put up was not what I had ordered. I paid them the $5,000, which as far as they knew, it was just my money that I was writing from my checking account. And the billboard immediately tore. It had broken. It, you know, it was torn. And I went in and I was like, fix it and use the material I originally ordered. I brought the original contract. He kept saying I didn't know what I was talking about, that the material I had ordered wouldn't work. And he actually at one point called me, you know, young lady, like, just sit down and be quiet. And I'm going to go talk, you know, talk to someone else. And I was, I think, 27 at the time, and I already knew exactly what was happening. And I knew that because I was a young woman, and specifically a woman, he wasn't going to treat me with respect, and he wasn't going to listen to me. So I went outside and called my friend Danny, who's um, a man in his 50s. He's like a school teacher and a poet and a writer and an editor. He knows nothing about billboard installation. Didn't even know I was doing this project. And I told him what was happening, and he laughed. And I was like, well, you pretend to be my boss. And t be, talk to this guy however you would talk to another man to get him to do something. And write this down. Tell him, and I told him the name of the material and tell him, we have to have that. Go in, hand him the phone. The guy goes into his office two minutes later, maybe three minutes. And I'd been there for a half an hour. Comes out and is like, okay, it's done. And I was like, what did you decide? He wouldn't even tell me what they decided. He said, it's between me and your boss. Talk to your boss. Called my friend Danny back. And he said, oh, yeah, he said he'll, he'll use the material you asked for. And he laughed. And he's like, he won't even tell you. He's like, I don't even know what I'm saying. It was a, just a really blatant example of like once I got a man to say it he listened and he definitely just wasn't listening to me because I was a woman right. because he was saying the exact same words I had said and that's the thing that it takes this kind of like putting this in the face of men putting all of these incidents in the face of men to get them to think whereas I imagine that for for most women who've read this book there's pretty much a yeah, you know, an instant recognition. Oh, yeah. You know, I immediately heard from women saying, this happens to me at the mechanics. This happened to me when I was in charge of the reconstruction of my own house. And they would only talk to my husband, even though, like, he was working and he was doing, he was away all the time and he didn't want anything to do with it. So I hear this over and over. And I think when I try to describe it to men who haven't actually seen it firsthand, they always think, oh, it can't be as bad as you're describing. But this incident is a really blatant example that I think proves that this sort of sexist thing does happen and it's not in our heads. It's not our imagination. It's obvious that there was a difference between a man speaking to him and a woman speaking to him and how he reacted. Even just the sexist culture in general, for women I, who read this book, I want to figure out how to put this. You know, women who read this book are not necessarily going to be surprised. Right. 
they're going to, you know, they're basically going to be nodding their heads and saying, yep, been there, been there, been there. You know, women that I have talked to, not, you know, not necessarily that they've read this book, which has just come out, but they have described individual incidents very much like any of the ones that you've chosen. I keep saying a lot of memoirs are written because the author thinks it's an exceptional story. I actually felt like I needed to write this memoir because my story is not exceptional at all. And I wanted to show how pervasive sexism is in multiple spheres of society, in rural areas, in liberal urban areas, in different parts of the world. I was in Berlin, I was in Paris, I was in Venezuela. I just wanted to show how pervasive it is everywhere and how it affects us constantly throughout our lives. I want to stress, too, that you are not by any means passive about this or a wallflower about this. There's a point, I think, when you hit your your late teens or early 20s and you move to New York, there's a long stretch of time where you just are fed up and not putting up with this anymore and just getting in people's... You, you know, you, basically everybody gets one strike and then you're up in their face. And then I assaulted some men in my 20s and I started hitting them if they flirted with me and I told them no once and then they touched my body, I would often just hit them. I'd punch them or I'd whack them over the head with my like sort of soft water bottle. And that's something else. I I did a reading at the Manhattan Public Library the other day and I left with a group of male and female friends and the straight men in the group just kept coming up to me and being like, you know, you have to learn how to fight back. You gotta just kick them in the balls, sweetie. And I was like, did You haven't read the book. Do you not know? I spent years being violent, and I didn't like it. It just made me feel, like, anxious all the time, and it didn't help. And they said, well, why didn't it help? They didn't stop when you you punched him or shoved him or kicked him. And I was like, well, yeah, that man stopped, but then a different man would do it the next day. It doesn't change the culture. And nobody likes you for doing it either. No one likes me for doing it. I didn't even particularly like myself. I just felt at some point after so many horrible things had happened, so frazzled and vulnerable, I was getting hazed, and I was not going to put up with it anymore. Again, it's, you know, hazing is a perfect metaphor, that it's like, this is a cultural thing, it's pervasive, you can't escape it, but you're expected to suck it up. Exactly. Your entire life. and And the minute you lash out, you're the bad person all of a sudden. I mean, a month ago... My partner was groped by a man at a bar. He had kept touching her shoulder at first, and she had scooted away from him. We were there with family. It was like a a bar at a restaurant. You know, and she kept scooting away from him. She'd asked him not to touch her shoulder several times, scooted away from him, and then he leaned over and grabbed her inner thigh and squeezed it. This is after the book came out. It continues happening, and my reaction to that, I don't completely remember doing it. I grabbed him by the collar of his shirt and threw him on the floor. And I still do that sometimes, and I think that it was appropriate in this situation, and he was kicked out of the bar. But it doesn't feel good to do that. I, I snapped. I sort of blacked out when I did that because I, I can't take it anymore. I can't take seeing the women around me being manhandled or treated basically like animals anymore. And when people say, just fight back, I don't want to have to do that. I feel horrible after I do that for several hours. It, it's a very intense feeling to have to be that confrontational all the time. Yeah, you know, I think there's this cliche about memoir writing that it's supposed to be therapeutic or cathartic. Right. But I have to imagine that churning up a lot of you know, this stuff, does it, you know, what, what kind of emotional response does it generate for you as you're writing? I wrote this book very quickly, and part of it was because I wanted it to be over. I've never had a... I'm usually a fiction writer. My last book is Things to Do When You're Goth. In the country, goth-like gothic, it's dark, 
funny, quirky, political stories. I usually like to write in a very stylized fashion, and I typically really enjoy the process of writing. It feels great. When I was writing this, I felt horrible. My back would ache and get tensed up. I was pretty anxious and short with people. You know, I felt sometimes like I was having a bit of a panic attack, and I thought about stopping at different times and maybe not finishing it. I would not recommend anyone do this unless you really really feel compelled for like some activist reason to do that. It's not therapeutic at all. I wanted to get it down on the page and now that it's down I've had some months to sort of recover and feel better and I'm not going to do anything like this again. But I did feel like this book was years in the making and I've been thinking about it for years and I just wanted to push through and get it done. And when you go out and do readings for this now it's in a generally supportive environment. So it's reading it doesn't generate, reading it in, in public doesn't generate that same kind of anxiety necessarily as the writing. Well, as far as self-care around the readings, I've selected pieces that I have healed from and that I don't still feel reactive toward. There are some pieces in this book that I won't read in public and that I ask, am asking um, my conversation partners not to bring up because I don't want to talk about them in detail in public. All I could do was write them down, and I don't want to revisit them, but the reader can revisit them when they read the book. That gets at something I wanted to circle back to in terms of the recent incident that you described, which is like some incidents that are in the book, which is that there are no safe spaces. I mean, you talk about getting sexually harassed by men in lesbian bars, which you would think would be like the safest space you could have or one of the safest spaces that you could have. Mm -hmm. But no, it, it is as easily viable, or violatable, I should say, as any other space in the culture. Yeah, the lesbian bar thing is really strange, and it's been happening more the last, like, eight years, I've noticed. When I go to, I actually refer to them as dyke bars, like, more than half the time now, there will be a straight man in there, and sometimes a straight couple just, some point in the night, come in, walk around, and start asking us to have a threesome with, with them. And they don't do it in a way that's like, talk to people first, it's flirtatious. They literally will walk up down the line, tap women on the shoulder who they find attractive and say, you interested in having a threesome? Like, that's the first thing that they say, and it feels um, dehumanizing. Right. Yeah, it's dehumanizing, and it, you know, it stems from that same impulse that men have to, you know, to just treat women as commodity, product, you know, for their use. And disposal. I mean, it actually is... A huge factor in um, female mortality rates is male violence. It's one of the top causes of death for women worldwide between the ages of 15 and 55. And there's no reverse equivalent. The number one reason that women are killed by their partners, and many, many women are killed by their partners, many more than men are killed by their female partners, they're killed when they're leaving them. And there's no reverse equivalent. Women are not killing their partners at massive rates, their male partners, when their partners decide to divorce them. But men, some for some reason, do feel like, well, if you're not going to be useful to me anymore, then I can dispose of you. It feels like, and you don't say this explicitly, but it was an impression that was sort of kicking around as I was reading this and other things. Women lash out, and this is wildly generalizing, so you know, take that into consideration, but women lash out at specific men for specific things. Mm -hmm. You did this to me, this is my revenge. Mm -hmm. Men can do that, but there's also a certain amount of men just lash out at women for being women. Yeah, so when we start to talk about systemic problems, reverse sexism and whether or not it exists, something that I've noticed that a lot of men I talk to get confused about is 
They're like, well, women have done bad things to me too. And I'm like, yes, of course they have. I'm not talking about, I'm not saying women cannot be abusive and I'm not saying women are perfect. I'm talking about a larger systemic problem. There are reports coming out now and new studies coming out that the number one cause of death for pregnant women may actually be male violence. They were only studying mortality rates for pregnant women, for women dying in the hospital from giving birth. But when they look at the larger picture, they're seeing that most pregnant women are dying outside of the hospital before giving birth because they're murdered by their male partners. There's no reverse equivalent to that. When we talk about systemic bigotry, when we talk about racism or sexism or homophobia, there's just no such thing as a reversal. It means that this population is at high risk because of their identity specifically, and these are the ways that they are at risk. For instance, I wrote in the book about my grandmother who died when I was 11 because of sexism. She went to the hospital having a heart attack and she told the doctor she knew she was having a heart attack. He told her that her pains were related to menopause and sent her home with a Tylenol and she died on the couch from a heart attack an hour later. And there was a lawsuit. We sued for his license. He had also done this to another woman, the exact same thing a few months before, and she also died. So there was a class action lawsuit, two families, one in, one being mine. We won the lawsuit somewhat. We were, he was found guilty, like we were paid money, but he didn't lose his license. And through that lawsuit as a small child, I learned that there is a huge disparity in the way that women are treated when it comes to health care. That often, especially heart attacks, are written off as female troubles, and women are more likely to die of heart attacks even if they seek treatment because it's misdiagnosed. So now you start to talk about not just sexual violence, but you're talking about people actually dying and their lives being put at risk because of unconscious bias. And that unconscious bias, as you relate, you know, extended into adulthood in your first gynecological exams, which were, you know, botched horribly badly. Well, I'm not sure that that example was unconscious bias. I do think that that may have been a combination of sexism, homophobia, and maliciously violent. Okay. That doctor, the first time I went to a gynecologist, I was 21 also because I was raised religiously and I'm queer. It was just never brought up as something that was for me, which is also you know, a symptom of sexism. But I went into the gynecologist and he, I'd written down the number of people I'd been sexually active with. And he told me that I should be on birth control if it had been that many people. And I said, no, I'm, you know, I'm just sleeping with women. But at the time, I think I was just sleeping with cis women. Although, anyway, you know, I was 21 and I said, you know, I'm only sleeping with people who have vaginas. I don't need to be on birth control. And he said, are all of these women? And I said, all but one, yes. And he folded his arms and leaned back and said, well, and I also heard you requested a female gynecologist. Why? Is that because you think women do it better? And I, I said, no. And I guess I should have walked out at that point, but I was very poor. I was living in the Lower East Side. I didn't have any money or health insurance, and this was a sliding scale clinic. And I thought, well, if I don't go here, I don't know where else I can go. You know, and he proceeded to treat me very badly, repeatedly tell the nurse that, you know, she was to speak to me instead of him, even when he was giving me the exam. And then, of course, he um, said that he thought I had cervical cancer and asked for a biopsy, and he cut my cervix very so badly that I hemorrhaged later that evening. And when I went to the emergency room, I found out that my pap smear was normal. There was nothing wrong with me except for the deep incision in my cervix. And I think that was an attempt for him to sort of maim me 
But it was basically a, a medical sexual assault. I, it was a, a medical it was assault. violent yeah. assault. Yeah. yeah, it was it was sexual. Mm-hmm. It was just a violent assault on my sex organs. Right. Yeah, to underscore for listeners, this is all taking place in the you know, the quote unquote liberal paradise of New York. So there is no safe space. Also in terms of the pervasiveness and circling back to the systemic issues that we've been talking about. You know, the reason that Lorena Bobbitt is famous thirty years later. Mm-hmm. is that she's an anomaly. So many men do this to so many women that it's barely newsworthy unless there's like huge numbers or it's particularly grotesque. You know, it, maybe it makes the news one day, but by the next news cycle it's forgotten because there's just so much of it happening. Yeah, and I'm grateful for the Me Too movement for keeping this in the news cycle and for just demanding that we, you know, that this be paid attention to, and, and for not stopping. I wrote this book hoping to add something to the Me Too movement and be part of it. I did it in a different way than a lot of the more sensational aspects of the Me Too movement have played out. A lot of it that has gotten the big media attention has been naming rich and powerful famous men. And like I said, I didn't name any men in this book because I think that persecution of individuals has its limitations when you're trying to progress systemic social change. I think it's a good start with some of the more powerful serial sexual predators, but now we have to push it further to start talking about the types of men that most women encounter who are not famous, powerful men, Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, Donald Trump, Louis C.K., but they're just everyday men that we come in contact with every day. Some of the men in this book are serial sexual predators, and some of them are just very normal men. And what would you say, as the book is getting out of people's hands and as you're talking about it, you know, I, you, you've kind of alluded to this already, but... What's the long-term goal in having done this? My long-term goal is that hopefully women who read this book will feel less alone. And if women are being gaslighted in their lives and being told repeatedly, this has nothing to do with you being a woman, this isn't sexism, they'll be able to hold this book in their hands and start to reflect on their own lives, start to see the water that we're swimming in and realize you're not crazy, you're not delusional, you're not overreacting. You're actually reacting totally appropriately to a very bad situation and that they will feel less alone in their experience and hopefully more empowered. And my long-term hope for men who read this book is that they become more aware of what the impact of sexism is cumulatively on women throughout our lives and start thinking about when they are possibly reacting to some things that they've been socialized into that they are unaware of and start treating women more equally. And you mentioned earlier writing this was not a happy experience, not a positive experience. What are you doing to move on? Or either writing or or just in general? I'm not sure if I'm doing anything necessarily to move on. I'm just going back to fiction writing, which I love, and that does give me a lot of joy. I think at the end of a few interviews, people are like, "How, how do you make it better for yourself? And when it comes to this issue, I don't write now because it continues to happen every day. So I guess the only thing I can do is sort of go out and talk and try to make people more aware of this. For myself, of course, I have my own things that I like to do. I'm going to be swimming, I'm going to be meeting with friends, going to poetry readings, and writing some hopefully good fiction again that's a very pleasant process for me. That will be something to look forward to the next time that Shabisa Woods comes out with a new book. For right now, we have 100 Times, a memoir of sexism from Seven Stories Press. It's available at your local independent bookstore and other places that you can find books. You have been listening to Life Stories, and if you've enjoyed this podcast, I hope you might go onto iTunes and rate it highly with a bunch of stars and give it a good review. 
it'll make it that much easier for people to find it when they are searching for podcasts about memoir writers. And you can subscribe and find out whenever new episodes are available. I'm Ron Hogan. Thank you for listening today, and I hope you'll join me again soon. Take care.